0: Let's say it's the 1600s, more than 400 years ago, and you are a prince in the Habsburg dynasty in Central Europe, which means you've inherited a cold, dark castle, a bunch of peasants who hate you, and the Habsburg jaw, because you're inbred, right, which will slowly make it more and more painful to eat anything but soup and chocolate. Oh, and you're basically impotent. So, good luck with that. But you also have a wunderkammer, a chamber of wonders. A couple rooms in the castle where you have exotic things, unexplainables, oddities. Like the tusk of a narwhal, six feet long which you tell people is the horn of a unicorn. An ostrich egg, nearly the size of a soccer ball. A two-headed snake and armadillo. And you have a nautilus shell cup, like the one that's now behind glass at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Literally the shell of a chambered nautilus. A giant mollusk the size of a dinner plate. The shell is held in an elaborate mount that a silversmith in Germany has wrapped around it. There's a giant fish on the top with this biblical guy named Jonah emerging from its mouth. And there's Cupid riding on the fish's back for some reason. And there's Neptune, the god of the sea, forming the stem of the cup, like the wine glass of Aquaman. Aquaman. Now, all these things are status symbols, right? I mean, this is 400 years ago. The plague is still going around. You're literally pooping out a hole in the floor, right into the castle moat. And yet, look at all these marvels from all over the world. You display them because you're rich and powerful. And you want everyone who visits the castle to know that. In case the castle didn't do the trick. But something else happens when you're around these marvels, these oddities, these unexplainables. When you put them all in a room, suddenly the world you thought you knew doesn't make sense anymore. And now, in the 1600s, you have to wonder, what if the smartest people of the past 2,000 years? Who could explain anything? We're dead wrong about everything. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, part one of Monsters and Marvels, about the Age of Discovery when monsters and marvels were suddenly everywhere, and nothing would ever be the same. I'm Tim Gearing. Monsters have been around as long as we have. Longer, maybe. God created the sea monsters first, according to the Bible or the Torah, before people or animals. And they were still around when we showed up. In the Torah and the Bible and the Koran is the story of Jonah and the giant fish, the story that's depicted on the Nautilus Cup. Jonah is a prophet, and God tells him to go warn this wicked city that he's about to smite them. He's about to smite them off the map. But this city has never been a friend to the Hebrews like Jonah. So Jonah's like, uh, no. Smite them. See if I care. I'm getting on a boat and going somewhere else. Long story short, God drums up a storm. Jonah is thrown overboard gets swallowed by a giant fish and lives for three days until he asks for forgiveness for being such a jerk and the fish vomits him out. Now, people took this story literally for thousands of years. In fact, in Germany, professors were punished for teaching the story as something other than actual history. People believed in God and they believed in monsters. But no one thought these monsters were normal or natural. Even Aristotle, whose philosophy was still the dominant explanation of natural phenomena during the Renaissance, had no explanation for monsters. He called them, quote, a mistake of purpose. But once sailors start traveling off the map, starting around the 1300s, they come back with strange and exotic things. Real monsters and marvels. Not just a story in a book. As Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet in 1599, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. One of these sailors was a guy named Georgius Everhardus Rumphius, a German guy who decides to go to Venice in the 1600s. But in fact, the ship he's put on is sailing for Brazil. He's been kidnapped. Eventually, he signs on with the Dutch East India Company as a soldier, living in Indonesia on the island of Ambon. He's not even 30. He's already lived half a dozen lives. He begins studying the animal and plant life around him, drawing pictures and writing up descriptions in what he calls is Ambani's Curiosity Cabinet. And one of the things in his Curiosity Cabinet is the chambered Nautilus. Hardly anyone was able to see the actual Nautilus creature. They live a thousand feet deep in the ocean and emerge only at night to rise up and go prowling the coral reefs. But the shells were out there, once the creature was dead or mostly dead, bobbing around the surface of the Indian Ocean. Rumphius finds them, sometimes with the creature still inside. In his drawing, it looks like a cross between a squid and an artichoke. The word nautilus... Literally means sailor in Greek, and Rumpheus describes it as a fish living in its own little boat. When it notices any kind of danger or ambush, he writes, it will pull all its flesh on board, turn the stern up, so that the little boat will take on water and sink to the bottom. With its little paws, he writes, he grabs hold of bits of wood, which it finds in the sea, and with which it goes afloating. Yes, he says afloating. Rumphius goes blind by 42. Shortly after, he loses his wife and youngest daughter in an earthquake. A few years after that, a fire destroys much of his writing and drawing. But he finishes anyway. And when his shell collection returns to Europe, and along with his papers, here's this trove of marvels. Asian artists have been carving designs at the Nautilus shells for a long time. And Rumphius describes how you do it. Peeling away the shell's outer membrane to reveal its mother-of-pearl. Cutting the walls between its chambers and carving it, and eventually shipping it to Europe, to Germany mostly, where Rumpheus was from. And there, gold and silversmiths would mount the shells as cups for collectors, combining a marvel of nature with a marvel of art. Some of the mounts are designed to look like little ships, just the way Rumpheus imagined. But the real marvel, of course, is what you can't see. The little sailor, no longer a-floating in its shell. Okay, let's go back to your castle. You get one of these ornate Nautilus shell cups from Germany. And you put it in your Chamber of Wonders next to your fancy cup made out of a coconut, and your fancy cup made out of an ostrich egg. There's an ostrich egg cup right now, by the way, on the storage shelves at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, supposedly made in the 1500s, but almost certainly a fake. There were a lot of these cups around back then. In fact, one of those early maps from the 1500s with Kirby dragons written on it, Where sailors believed there were monsters. That map was drawn on a giant ostrich egg cup. Now, not so long ago, sitting around with this stuff and wonder and curiosity would have been way out of line. Wonder and curiosity were for the fearful, the superstitious, the busybodies. Curiosity killed the cat, right? And the tree of knowledge had forbidden fruit. Things happen because God's made them happen. End of story. Earthquakes, floods, the plague. The fact that you have this castle and no one else does. You start wondering about that and people would wonder about you. Wonder, as one academic put it, It's kind of an uncomfortable emotion because it means you don't have all the answers. The ground is shifting under you. You're vulnerable. Quote, you don't have wonder. Wonder has you. It grabs you by the lapels and shakes you. but now it's the 1600s and the ground is already shifting. Martin Luther has broken with the church, right? The Reformation. Copernicus has come up with a pretty convincing idea of how the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. And Galileo has basically proved it, despite what the church says. Galileo has found craters on the moon, too, and more moons around Jupiter. And now, almost everything you thought you knew about how the world works is up for grabs, including monsters. In 1620, the English philosopher Francis Bacon writes as Novum Organon basically, the new theory of everything. The first real overhaul of Aristotle in 2,000 years, and in this book he tells his fellow intellectuals to start learning about monsters. Quote, a compilation or natural history must be made of all monsters and prodigious births of nature, he says. Quote, of everything, in short, that is new, rare, and unusual in nature. Because if you can't explain monsters or marvels, the exceptions to the rule, then you can't prove the rule. And Bacon desperately wants a rule. He wants to explain nature, not explain it away. This is science, folks, or the beginnings of it. It's the scientific method. Back in the 1980s, a couple of young academics named Catherine Park and Lorraine Daston noticed this sudden burst of interest in Monsters and Marvels in the 1500s and 1600s, which no one had really explored before. Lorraine Daston, by the way, is the one who said, Wonder grabs you by the lapels. And they realize that as more and more people study monsters in the age of discovery, more and more the monsters appear not as God's wrath, but as natural wonders. Signs of nature's fertility, as they put it. Volcanoes don't erupt because of an angry God. Birth defects don't happen because of an angry God. Your jaw isn't falling off because of an angry God. It isn't unnatural, in other words, or a mistake of nature. It is nature. And then, suddenly, the monsters fade away. The most irrational of creatures had helped us become rational. Rational and then monsters didn't look so monstrous anymore. They had, in effect, destroyed themselves. By the time of the Enlightenment in the 1700s, talk of monsters and marvels was already kind of embarrassing again. It still is to many people, right? Wonder is for children who don't know any better. But now our marvels are disappearing. The chambered Nautilus was put on the endangered species list a couple years ago. People have been trapping them, selling their shells for souvenirs. About 100,000 of their shells were being imported every year into the United States alone. You could buy one for 20, 30 bucks. These creatures have been around for 500 million years since before the dinosaurs and they're headed for extinction in the next 30 years. To save them and other things like them, we'll need more than science and reason, we'll need to care, we'll need to see these marvels as, well, marvelous. Let's go back one more time to the 1600s and that Wunderkammer in your castle. If you look inside the Nautilus shell cup, it appears a typical seashell with a big dark opening where the monster lived. But Georgius Rumphius, the German guy on the island, learned to slice the Nautilus shell down the middle. To get a cross section view. And then you can see that there's not just one chamber there. The chamber nautilus grows in its shell by forming larger and larger chambers to live in and sealing off the old ones. To see this spiral of chambers is to see that nature is always creating, evolving. But you can also see that the chambers follow a mathematical formula as they spiral out, getting bigger and bigger. Maybe the most famous formula of the ancient world, the golden ratio. The golden ratio was used by Michelangelo and da Vinci and Botticelli to compose their masterworks. Because it's logical and pleasing... But also because it shows up in nature again and again. The golden ratio was considered the signature of God. Now, you can think about the chambered Nautilus either way as the perfection of nature or the perfection of God. Or you could see it the way people did before they thought they had to choose as both the harmony of the natural and the supernatural, reason and faith. Because we haven't figured everything out, right? In the whole history of the world, most of what we figured out was wrong. Even now, no one has ever seen the chambered Nautilus rise up from the deepest depths, because no one can swim that far down. And so we have to imagine them, these marvels, on their nightly migration up and down. Their 90 tentacles reaching out in the dark, hoping to find something to sustain them. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on the web at artsmia.org. And thank you very much for listening.